Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. There are some parents who say, why, you're putting books in my child's school that are not at all age appropriate. Would you either put them on a special shelf or say, don't put them into the classroom lessons at all? Well, now Joe Biden has hired a new czar to monitor efforts to remove certain books from school libraries around the country. So, He's going to start monitoring whether or not certain books are pulled out or where parents have come in and said, I don't want this book. And they show up at the school board meeting and start to read the book. And the school board says, you can't read that stuff. That's too dirty for us to hear. And the parents respond by saying, well, if it's too dirty for you to hear uh, adults at a school board meeting, why should my young child be hearing it? Well, Bridget Ziegler joins me now, who's director of the Leadership Institute School Board Programs. Bridget, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, and thank you for laying it out as clearly as you did. You're right on the money. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I mean, I, 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 no, no offense to you, but I'd love to talk to Matt Nosenchuk, if that's the way you say his name. This is the guy who's going to be the new czar, who's going to go out and fight against removing dirty books from either public libraries or schools. Is that the general idea, and that Joe Biden is going to bring the weight of the federal government to bear to try to make sure these books are not removed? Yeah, well, so thanks for having me. And as you laid out, the the new czar for monitoring school boards responding to their local constituents, many of whom are concerned parents about pornographic material. And it is, I want to be very clear, uh, this is not, um, you know, Huckleberry Finn kind of issue where there's division. It's straight pornography or very explicit sexual acts. And I can go into that in a little bit. But the new czar uh, has a really interesting background particularly around LGBTQ advocacy work. Um, much of this is being put into schools under the guise of inclusion. Um, and again, these are not, I think what the word banning triggers a lot of human beings across the nation to think um, that, that that's a bad thing. And to your point, that no one's banning books. The federal government is the only one who can ban books. But these are locally elected school board members responding to constituents, many of whom are parents, who are asking them to keep explicit pornographic or sexual material away from their elementary, middle school, and even high schoolers. It really is not what our taxpayer dollars are there for. Um, but Biden's uh, administration and the weaponization of federal agencies continues uh, as this new uh, um, book czar, as you said, is uh, coming online to uh, monitor and, and likely threaten parents like we've seen before. You know, uh, Bridget, I always tell my audience I'll disclose if I have a dog in the fight. I love books. I love books. And I know I've read books that would not be appropriate for my granddaughter, who's seven. And and I think a good parent, a good librarian, a good teacher would protect kids from that. So what what exactly, and when you said, only one small correction, you said only the federal government has the power to ban a book. Actually, under the First Amendment, they don't have a power to ban. They are actually specifically forbidden from banning That's books. True. So so what is it that this Nosenchuk character, who sounds like he has a dog in the fight, as I like to call it, if I have a bias, uh, what what what's he supposed to do? Just go out and, and I guess, bring the weight of the presidency or the authority of the White House uh, with him to say you may not ban these books or what? 
Well, it's interesting because they really haven't explicitly put that out. It's almost, it's to quote, I think that the press release even includes the word monitor, uh, which is an eerie kind of sounding evaluation from the federal government down at the local level. And I, I think it's important to stay, take a step back. Uh, and we're talking about K-12, which is minor children. Certainly when we talk about high school, I hope that they're receiving the academic foundation so they can have critical thinking skills to, to evaluate and, and take on more complex topics and books. Uh, I think we would all applaud that. That would include a wide range of scenarios, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, it's not, uh, we're talking about books that are making its way through elementary and middle in particular is where we found them. That are books like um, Gender Queer is certainly talked about a lot. Um, boys Aren't Blue, uh, it's perfectly normal. And, and just to give your listeners some sense of what we're talking about, is that these books, as is mentioned, many can't even be shown or read in a, a school board meeting. Uh, they'll be removed for inappropriate conduct, which is ironic. But these are, they're so sexually explicit, I don't feel comfortable explaining them. But I would well, say the sexual Bri- Bri- Bridget, <laughs> I've got a confession for you, too. You know that radio is regulated by the Federal Communications Correct. Commission. They're the famous seven dirty words. But it goes beyond that, because if I were to use even clinical terms and describe certain bodily functions that are perfectly normal and do it on the air, the FCC can come down on me like a ton of bricks, of fines in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. When we've talked about this subject before, we've literally had stuff where parents will say, this is in my kid's you know, elementary school. And, and, and I'll say, yeah, I want to tell my audience what it's about, but I'm going to have to really use some you know, euphemisms and other ways to describe it, because if I read it on the air, I'd certainly, you know, I'd certainly end up with an FCC complaint for saying it on the mm-hmm. radio. So if you can't say it on the radio to a mostly, you know, adult audience, uh, even in the middle of the day, um, you know, why, why in the world do these teachers or librarians think it's appropriate to put in front of kids? Well, it's interesting. I'm a school board member in Sarasota, Florida as well. And I will say that what we found a lot of times, whether true or not, was how did these books get there? And um, they, a lot of times it was, I don't know. So there's been a lot of process, uh, improvement in processes to properly vet the material that's going to be readily available to minor children. I think that's an expectation of a public official uh, and a public school uh, when we're talking about minor children. But the other part that I think is what I've come to find out is that a lot of these are part of packages. So you have, and I, I'm not going to say gender queer is part of a, you know, um, a certain starlight or you know, the highlands or different kind of, or highlights, excuse me, different, you know, literature or packages that we know of. There are, they get received certain uh, star ratings and then at librarians, educators, well, they'll see it aligned to something else and they'll buy a whole package and then, oh, oh by the way, some of these, you know, inappropriate books are, are embedded in there. And so I think a lot of school districts got caught off guard because they probably didn't have proper systems where they're vetting them. And then you move to the czar where I, I, you know, I almost I really want him to be in a position where he's going to justify and, 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 and lobby to keep this kind of material inside a school that that, you know, is there to serve five, six, seven year olds, even 10, 11 year olds when you have graphic, not just words, but actual drawings. Um, you know, we need to get back to academics. We have proficiency levels that are, are sliding at the lowest level. Meanwhile, this kind of trash, for lack of a better term, that really is dividing our communities, dividing and distracting our uh, educators from doing the very important work that they need to do. And by the way, I know because we haven't been able to get a librarian on in quite some time, but I've had them say, well, you're asking me to censor. 
And my favorite way to answer that is say, do you have every book in the world in your library at your school or wherever it happens to be? And they'll say, well, no, of course not. We're not the Library of Congress. And I say, okay, so you have to make qualitative and quantitative choices about which books you put on the shelf and which books you don't. Is that censorship? And they'll say, well, no, that's not censorship because we're librarians and we're doing it. But if, <laughs> if any of you parents came in and said, please don't put gender queer in front of my kid in third grade, they'll say, well, then that's censorship. And I ask them, what the heck's the difference? And that's why I think the librarians don't come back on the show. Bridget, keep up the good work. Bridget Ziegler is the director of the Leadership Institute School Boards Programs. Back in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned, the green agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. Die, gas pumper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. the cost of Christmas has climbed so high, even the head of the Biden crime family finds it expensive. Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. Merry Christmas from the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to ask, though, our friend Ken Davis, who's an energy expert and the former deputy attorney general for Virginia. Welcome to the program, Ken. And it it always, call me naive, if you will, but it always seemed to me that when we got to an Internet that was loaded with great information where you could check and cross-check things, that we'd end up with better and better information about the world around us all the time. And it seems we're, we're getting flooded with bad information, and some of that bad information is the information that describes what inflation is doing to Americans about now. Welcome back, by the way, and I want to get your take on that. Well, it's good to be back, Lars, and and that's um, that's a good description. I mean, there's a lot of data out there about how prices of goods and services change from month to month. Problem is that uh, the government's officially reported figure, the so-called con- consumer price index, that's supposed to measure, supposed to accurately measure. Uh, the cost of a basket of typical goods and services that uh, we all have to buy. And therefore, it's supposed to be a good representation of what inflation is is doing for the uh, typical American household. That's how it's supposed to work in theory. But the problem is that the the government bureaucrats, the progressive bureaucrats who calculate CPI, and they've been doing this for years, have an institutional interest in understating the actual inflation rate. Now, why is that? Um, Well, inflation is an issue 
it's the top political issue um, you see in poll after poll. And that's for very um, understandable reasons. I mean, we've got to pay the bills. We've got to put food on the table. So the price of uh, food and fuel and shelter and the basics, that's a real core issue for Americans. And so the government, if they, uh, uh, through their irresponsible spending and money printing and regulatory policy, push inflation up, and they have done that. They have created this inflation through their fiscal, monetary, and regulatory policies. And so they have an institutional interest in lowballing the figure. You know, as if we can't tell what the real situation is, but nevertheless, there's a big, powerful, out-of-Washington narrative about uh, CPI, and uh, so they hold it down uh, to try to keep control of the narrative. And Ken, isn't this a, a relatively new problem in this sense? For what, close to 20 years, America was clocking along at about 2% or just below. In fact, I think the inflation rate when Joe Biden took the oath was, I think, 1.7. And now he brags that it's it's down, you know, say, 4% or just above, except that's more than double what it was the day he took the oath of office, uh, even though it's down from the high of, I think, 9% or so last year when it, it hit stratospheric levels. And Joe now wants to brag about how much it's dropped from last year. And I keep reminding people, yeah, but it's double what it was, you know, historically. But for about 20 years, whether inflation went up or down a tick or two uh, wasn't that big a deal because inflation had been, you know, r largely tamed in the United States. Now, who knows how long we'll have to be concerned about inflation? Yeah, well, they told us, uh, the Biden administration said um, <laughs> almost two years ago um, that it was transitory and we should not worry about it. But uh, yep. we are into our second year of transitory inflation and they do like to say well it's it's down inflation is down from what it was a year or so ago and that's true but inflation is not the price level inflation measures the rate at which prices are increasing yep. so if uh, they increase at eight percent and then increase at four percent that is a slower rate of increase, but they're still increasing. And what Biden doesn't want to focus on is that if you look at the total change in the price level since he took office, they've gone up, prices have gone up um, about 19 or 20 percent, okay? And so even if inflation went to zero, there's still prices are still um, around twenty, close to twenty percent higher than when he took office. Well, so, and, criti and critically, listen. don't we have to throw paychecks in there too? Because paychecks have not gone up twenty percent in the last, you know, since Joe, in two and a half years since he took office. Which means, no matter what the prices are, if your paycheck isn't catching, isn't keeping up, then you're in trouble. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean. Uh, 
everybody listening, uh, if if um, since Biden took office, if uh, your paycheck has not increased by a lot more than 20 percent uh, in the two plus years, then uh, you are losing ground. I mean, the Census Bureau keeps track of this, and they um, they recently reported that median average median household income in the country adjusted for inflation fell last year by almost eighteen hundred dollars that means the average american household is eighteen hundred dollars in the hole in just one year and if you look at the figures since um biden took office it's approximately four thousand dollars so um the white house likes to say that uh Bidenomics is working, but if this is working, <laughs> I'd hate to see what the situation is when they would admit that it's not working. I'm talking to Ken Davis, who's an energy expert. We call on him frequently for that expertise. He's the former deputy attorney general for Virginia. At this point, Ken, I got to be critical of my own business, and that is media, because the media can say, well, that's the number they put out. Well, actually, they put out lots and lots of numbers. It's the choice of reporters and news networks which numbers they're going to use. And I'll make this comparison. The National Weather Service actually reports the temperatures every day for scientific accuracy in Kelvin. Now, of course, that gets translated in TV and radio newsrooms to Fahrenheit in America. But, you know, what if... What if you said, well, the, the number they put out is Kelvin temperature, so that's the one we're going to report. No, you could actually make the decision to say, we're not going to use that number because it doesn't truly describe what's going on in a way that our audience can understand it. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the information is there, but the problem, as you point out, the problem is that too many people in the, uh, uh, in the establishment press uh, are not interested or they're happy to go along with the ride, or they instinctively know and feel that they don't want to do anything to uh, uh, be critical of um, an administration they support. And, of course, that's a real shame because their job, and it's a high calling, and your show proves it, uh, it's a high calling to um, get the facts and report the facts that's what we ought to be doing. And that's what the rest of the media ought to do. Pick the number that actually describes what the economy is doing or not doing. Ken, thanks very much. That's Ken Davis, former Deputy Attorney General for Virginia. You got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Team Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters, at least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. 
You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. There are some disturbing things being done in the world of technology. And among them, and we've talked about it on this show, is the idea that you could create an artificial womb. That is, you could take a fetus, and I think they're on the way to creating artificial fetuses as well, or fetuci, whatever the plural is, um, and then raise it without the assistance of an actual young lady. Uh, in this case, it's appropriate to uh, introduce a young lady, Emma Waters, who's a research associate at the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at Heritage. Emma, welcome back to the program. Hi, Lars. Great to talk to you again. It's great to talk to you as well. And forgive me if I call them Frankensteins. What, are, do the Frankenstein doctors have in mind to create artificial wombs so that, I mean, we, we've already effectively suggested as a society that you young ladies can be replaced by a guy in a dress with lipstick if you do the right amount of surgery on him. So why not go whole hog and say, even your ability to bear children is not unique to you. We're going to create something that does that, too. How, how should women take that kind of development or that kind of effort? Yeah, and right. This is something that should absolutely offend women and cause, um, I think, a lot of society just to pause and think about what the obvious end of such a movement like this is. Like, like you said, we're pushing towards the erasure of women and a distinct understanding of what it means to be a woman in a really important way. Um, so on the one hand, you have, I think it was last month in Alabama where they had the first successful um, child born from a uterine transplant in a woman. And so on the one hand, um, technological developments like this are very positive um, because in instances where it's actually used to restore a woman's body, um, yeah. this could be seen as a positive thing, right? But we know that the people who are funding this industry are not simply looking at restorative measures. They're also looking at measures that would circumvent or pervert the body altogether, such as a uterus transplant going into a male to do something that is neither naturally possible nor particularly good for women or children. No, and I agree with you. And Emma, some of the people who are supporting this nonsense, you're too young to remember this. There were a lot of feminists decades ago who said, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And I thought, oh, well, now this is coming around to bite you in the backside because uh, the, the scientists are saying, yeah, we don't need women. We can create, uh, I think they're at the point where they can create a human fetus without uh, even, you know, they can do it from stem cells and things like that. We'll take away the man, the woman and the womb, and then we can create human beings that way. And it sounds to me like something that, that has some really disturbing implications because thing that you've created from that process still a person under the law or 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 yeah. if you've created it and there are copyrights and patents and things like that is that something you can own which takes us right back to abraham lincoln's time in some ways doesn't it <laughs> no it absolutely does and this is what's so interesting is the rationale used to justify the transatlantic slave period is really similar to the rationale used to justify things like surrogacy or um, other aspects of this that you're alluding to. So they said at the time that they weren't buying and selling humans during the transatlantic slave period. They were only buying the time and the labor of the men and women involved. And in a very similar way, today when it comes to surrogacy contracts, um, the law is very careful to say that you're not paying a woman to have a child for you because that would be baby selling and clearly we don't want to sell babies. You're just paying a woman for the time and difficulties of pregnancy. Um, no matter the fact that she gets three installments after each 
successful trimester, including birth itself, no matter that you're actually paying a lot of money for this child to be created through in vitro fertilization, um, oftentimes or sometimes you're paying to buy the egg or the sperm um, if you don't have both in your marriage or you're not married. And then, of course, you're paying a woman to use her womb. So at the end of the day, you hit this really sticky situation where it's not baby selling, but also you've paid for every single aspect of the child that you've received, including the legal rights to call them their, your, call them your own, even though it is nowhere near the simple act of procreation that has defined what it's meant to be human for most of time. Um, so I think that you're right that we're really hitting this point where to the degree that we pervert or change how humans are created, you're changing a very fundamental part of what it means to be a human. Um, so there's something called sperm-free fertilization where they can actually, and they've only tested this on mice, um, but they've tested it successfully on mice, where they were able to take the egg from a female mouse break it down, rebuild it genetically into a sperm such that that quote-unquote sperm could actually fertilize that same mouse's egg, um, resulting in a viable pregnancy and the birth of other mice. Now, some of these mice were missing brains, but some of them were eerily normal. Um, and so in that very moment, you've actually taken out the need for a father or another person altogether. Um, and if they can do it with the egg, it's not infeasible that they could do the same thing, but with a sperm or in other instances, just using skin cells from a mouse's body. So they end up missing brains. So I, I wondered why this was so ha uh, popular among the Democrats and the liberals, because, you know, just but but this and here's the thing about when you say we're not selling babies. Well, at the end of the process, do you own that child? Well, in all for all practical purposes, you do. You say, I control that child. That child will live at my house. I will raise that child. Now, at some point, if the child is, you know, and again, if we if we get to a point where you say the child is still a human child and is entitled to rights, and I think that's very much at risk when this is going on, mm -hmm. you could say, well, at 18, that child can make his or her own decisions. But up to that point, the parents get to make all the decisions. What, what's the difference between that and actually owning that child? It's exactly right, because in a proper understanding of the rights that parents have um, over their biological children, this is referring to oftentimes the rights that a parent has to protect their child. We know that children are safer when they're raised in homes with their biological mother and father. We know that children are protected when their parents are married um, from all sorts of outside predators and concerns. Um, and, and that's really, I think, like the best way to think about it is what do children need? And then parents are those oftentimes biological figures who have the right and the responsibility to protect them. But when you're buying and selling babies effectively, when you're buying and selling the rights of parenthood, all of a sudden what's inherent in the understanding of to be a parent, which is to protect your child, has already been corrupted when the very practice of creating the child um, violates their dignity and violates um, what it means to be human and to honor a human in, in a very important sense. So they've already really lost um, out on what it means to be a parent, and, and they've already started to violate some of the primary callings of a parent, which is to protect your child from those very harms. Well, see, and the other thing that bothers me, I'm talking to Emma Waters. She's with the Heritage Foundation at the uh, Richard and Held of Oz Center for uh, Life, Religion, and Family. I don't want to sound like Joe Biden or anything, but I was starting to slur. Um, but what, what really bothers me is that when a, a man and woman create a child, their focus is on the child. It's about the child. And usually for the rest of their lives, they're concerned about their children or as grandparents are concerned about the kid. But in this case, it seems to, to feed into a bunch of narcissistic 
uh, things like, I want to be a mother, even though you're a male. And so I'll have a uterine transplant at some point, and I'll create a child. So it's all about you, not about the child or where what situation it may leave that child in. I'll give you the last 30 if you want it. So last 30, uh, I think it's important that when we're assessing reproductive technologies, and there are certainly more than we have time to talk about today, is that, like I said, we keep in mind this framing of does this technology restore the human body? Does it restore the purpose that humans are created for? Um, or does it circumvent that altogether? And we should really prioritize technologies that restore the human body, like a woman receiving a needed uterine transplant, rather than allowing for technologies that sub- circumvent or subvert the body such as surrogacy or uterine transplant into a biological. I couldn't agree with you more. That's Emma Waters, research associate at the Heritage Foundation. Emma, thanks very much. And we'll uh, we'll be talking about it more, I'm sure, in the future. Back in a moment. Your calls welcome. 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Ronald Reagan knew better. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. I want to ask you a couple of questions. One, how much money? Did the federal government spend buying office furniture during the pandemic while an awful lot of their people were actually working from home? In other words, can you imagine a government so dumb to say we're going to buy new office furniture for all of our offices? And somebody says, hey, boss, aren't most of our workers working from home? Why do they need new furniture at an otherwise empty office? Well, the guy who can actually answer that question, maybe even one other I've got to put to him, is our friend Adam Angievsky, the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. And you ought to check it out because the information there all comes from the public record, and it's absolutely fascinating to find out what our government is actually up to. Adam, welcome back. Lars, thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. Well, thank you for that. $3.3 billion in new office furniture. Would you mind telling my audience about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were pretty stunned. So we took a look at five years from 2018 through 2022. We expected to find a dip in the federal purchase in the agencies of furniture for their offices. Instead, we found that it was flat. There was no dip. It was a billion dollars in every single year, and sometimes a little bit more, from 2018 through 2022. They just kept spending It makes it sound like the federal government is some kind of juggernaut, that once you get it moving in a certain direction, it doesn't matter whatever else is happening in the world. It just keeps on moving in that direction regardless. i got to tell you some of the things that they found in this report by Open the Books. Number one, the Environmental Protection Agency bought $6.5 million. They spent that on trendy furniture, even as it was downsizing to move from its bigger offices into a 300,000-square-foot office space at 4 Penn Central in, um, in Pennsylvania. The Centers for Disease Control 
you know, they were tip of the spear on the pandemic. So what did they do? They spent a quarter million dollars, our taxpayer money, on roughly 30 solar-powered picnic tables. Their workforce is What is home. a solar-powered? That sounds like a solar-powered broom or a solar-powered hammer. What the heck is a solar-powered picnic table? You know, this is part of the green energy agenda, I guess. Like, if you have your lunch outside, you need to plug in. You need to plug in your computer. You need to plug in your cell phone to get it recharged. And there's solar panels off the top. The problem is they're not cheap. They're about ten grand per picnic table. 10000 bucks for a picnic table for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and 120000 on Ethan Allen leather recliners for the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan. I mean, these people must think, you know, it doesn't matter. It's somebody else's money. Buy whatever you want, no matter how fancy, no matter how expensive. Is that the trend? Yeah, I mean, shoot, I had a business exit. My brother and I started a company. We grew it over a decade from scratch to $20 million in sales. And in 2007, the venture uh, capital uh, firms, the VC firms, cashed me out. I don't shop at Ethan Allen. It's too expensive. (laughs) But the State Department purchased 40 recliners, leather recliners, in Islamabad, Pakistan. We took a look at the way that embassy looks. There's two towers. You can probably fit 40 Ethan Allen recliners in there, but it was $120,000 of our money. Unbelievable. And does anybody, is there any approval process for any of this? Or, or is there an approval process that maybe just says, okay, whatever you want to buy, we're going to sign off on it. It doesn't matter. We got the money. Let's just go ahead and spend it. What, what, what kind of process is behind these, these stratospheric decisions? Well, over the course of the last couple of years, Lars, you and I have had frequent conversations about the use-it-or-lose-it budgeting practices within the federal agencies, where they blow through their budgets this year to get the same or more money last, the next year. And this is a prime example of just how broken it is. They want their furniture spending budget, so even when the employees are at home for nearly the last four years. They're still there, Lars. 75% of the federal workforce is still working from home. They're paid to stay home, but they have not cut their furniture budget. i got to tell you something, Adam, just so people understand. I'm not just saying, well, rules for thee, but not for me. I mean, our main broadcast studios have been severely downsized. And why? Because an awful lot of people are working remotely. A couple of my producers work remotely. And the result is they, they, they don't have to rent as much space. And if you're up to a new uh, lease and you say, well, should we have the same amount of space we had before the pandemic? Do we need it? Private companies downsize very quickly. But you point out in your report that 17 out of 24 federal agencies are using as little as 9% of their either owned or leased space. And some of them are using only half of their building capacity. Is there any move to, to slice that down? Yeah, so uh, I, I uh, you know, the U.S. House Government Oversight Committee, they've reached out. They want all the detail. We sent them the line-by-line database. They're going to explore this. Look, they're, you know, we're four years, we're nearly four years into this pandemic right now. And when you're only using 9% of your headquarters or your office space, there's a real problem. Decisions have to be made to protect the American taxpayer from wasteful spending. And so everything's on the table. you got the Department of Transportation under Secretary Pete Buttigieg, using just 9% of its office space, they spend $55 million bucks on furniture. The Department of Ag, 9% of its office space, $57 million on furniture. 
You've got Veterans Affairs. At headquarters, only 16% of the office space. The rest of those VA executives are working from home. They spent a half billion dollars on furniture. The Department of Defense, they spent $1.2 billion on furniture. While what? we're running By the way, short what are they, on weaponry. What do they do with the old stuff, Adam? Because I've always thought it was kind of a scandal that an awful lot of schools will throw out furniture and then people go uh, dumpster diving and they find perfectly good desks and chairs and tables and they take them home and they make use of them themselves. But it's, you know, it's, it's maybe lost its showroom luster and so the schools throw it out. It sounds like the federal government behaves the same way. They do. As a matter of fact, we found two federal agencies. They actually did downsize their office space. So you got the EPA in, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They downsized their office space, but they upsized their furniture. They spent nearly $7 million purchasing new furniture for the smaller office space. <laughs> <laughs> you got well, the pension here in you know, an you agency most people have never heard of, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which I last time I checked was mostly about bailing out union pensions where the union ripped off their workers. They spend $15 million on new furniture that works out to about $14,000 worth of furniture for each one of about 1,000 employees. Adam, I'm going to encourage people to check this out. And I hope you start looking and now that the Biden administration says it's now going to it's decided that it's going to actually build the border wall after all. I certainly hope that what you look at is what did they finally get for the three hundred million dollars worth of uh, uh, material that was purchased for the Trump border wall that the Biden administration decided to sell for pennies on the dollar. That's Adam Angievsky from Open the Books. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls. You're listening to the Lars Larson the Lars Show. Larson Show. The best of the Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way to get... It's Friday, Friday. Friday. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. You know, the White House has been playing games, not only with the border, not just by throwing the doors wide open on our southern border, but also by Joe Biden's decision just last week to issue to almost half a million Venezuelans. Number one, protection from deportation. Number two, the ability to go out and work and say, well, we're helping out all these migrants. Well, in my mind, if you came to America legally, you're a migrant. If you came illegally, then you're an illegal alien. I would imagine that Sam Peake would agree with that. Sam is the senior policy analyst for Americans for Prosperity. Sam, welcome back to the program. And what should we make of what the White House seems to be doing with not only the border, but with a policy toward illegal aliens once they're inside our country? Hey, thank you for having me. So... This issue is uh, essentially what Biden is doing is he's closing off legal immigration and he's trying to uh, do whatever he can uh, with the humanitarian pathways. You know, what he did with the Venezuelans 
is he granted nearly half a million of them what's called temporary protected status. By the way, it's not temporary. Uh, people have been in the country for uh, decades on temporary protected status, and he, and, uh, and he keeps using it. And he, and, uh, he just granted uh, Venezuelan temporary protected status a while ago, and he, uh, he used it to cover more people this time. And the reason why he did this is because he wanted them to have work permits so they, uh, so they could eventually uh, not uh, just be reliant on the, uh, the local services that New York City is offering with their right to shelter law. But he has been closing off the normal way that people come here to work, which uh, a lot of small businesses are using, uh, these work visas. And he raised the fees for those visas in order to subsidize people coming here for asylum. And I, I want people to understand just how, I don't know, I don't know another way to describe it than nefarious. Because when the president says, I'm going to raise the cost of H-1 and H-2A visas that people might use legitimately to bring people in legally to do work. And at the same time, I'm going to take a whole bunch of people who came in illegally and give them this fantastic reward, uh, protection from deportation and the right to go to work. And that means that when they go to work, they're going to displace any need or any demand or a lot of the demand uh, for the employers or with the employers who would otherwise be bringing in H-2A and H-2B visas. Am I reading that right? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You know, what, what the president is doing by trying to make these, uh, these asylum pathways into work visa programs, he's like trying to uh, put a square peg into a round hole. You know, it's not... That's not what that system was designed for. And now we have a situation where you have a bunch of migrants huddled in New York City waiting for work permits. You have, they have to wait 180 days for a work permit. Uh, meanwhile, you have a lot of communities uh, in upstate New York, a lot of uh, small businesses that aren't able to hire the workers they need. The irony to all of this, too, is that Mayor Eric Adams tried to ship the migrants to all these upstate communities but they couldn't afford the cost. But at the same time, they've got a labor shortage because Biden has made it harder for them to sponsor work visas. I mean, because, Sam, the way I read it, uh, and maybe I'm being too simplistic about it, but if I thought, well, I want to really mess up an economy, I'm going to flood that economy and I'm going to use goods instead of labor, although in the economy, goods and labor somewhat interchangeable. So if you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to just destroy this system. If I flood the economy with cheap, illegal goods, then the legitimate goods won't sell and the people who sell them will go out of business. If I flood the economy with cheap, illegal labor, even if it's illegal, and you've got all these employers who say, I got to have people here. I've got to have people to cook, to clean, to wait tables. I've got to have people to work in my hotel or my automobile repair shop or whatever business you happen to be in. And I've got this gigantic flood of people that the president has let come in and stay. And even if they're not legal, I'm going to go ahead and hire them. I'll hire them under the table and I'll work it that way because they've given me no other choice. It's that or see my business go out of business. Is that about the picture? That That's right. In the same way that uh, that bans on guns only reward criminals who are willing to break the law. Bans on legal immigration only reward employers who are hiring illegally. And so the ones who are willing to pay a fair wage and follow the law, go through all the paperwork, they're the ones getting penalized in the end. So now you've got all these folks, I mean, 
Right now, H-2A visas are 10% of America's entire ag workforce. As I understand the numbers, the piece you wrote for the New York Post, and New York State has 16,000 H-2 visas that were granted between October of of two years ago and uh, September of last year. And so they, they hire all these people. That means all these Venezuelans, once they're able to work, will be able to say, well, I'll just go get a job. And, and even if they're not legally able to do it, they'll be able to say, there are people out there who are going to hire me, and they'll pay me under the table. I'll make money under the table. I won't have to pay for any, uh, I won't have to pay taxes. I won't have to pay uh, Social Security or anything else. So the farmer benefits by the illegal action, the illegal benefits from the illegal action. And the only folks who get hurt are all the folks trying to do it legally. That's right. Uh, and with with the Venezuelans, even if, if they get the work permit, they would still be getting. They could. They're still not subject to the same uh, wage requirements that the people who are hired on work visas are paid. Because if you want to hire someone on a work visa, you got to pay them the average wage that other workers are making in that area. And the other thing too is that when you open up these uh, systems that are for humanitarian pathways, and you close the ones for uh for work what you end up doing is you you change the psychology of the people coming here because now they have to say i have a i have a humanitarian case i'm persecuted when really what they wanted to be saying was i i'm i'm seeking economic opportunity so you're kind of changing the psychology of the immigrants as well because you're creating a, you're fostering a victim mentality instead of a mentality of uh of growth and of uh, providing for other people to help yourself you know, I almost hate to say that this is Joe Biden doing this, because honestly, Sam, I don't think Joe Biden's calling the shots. But whoever it is in the I mean, I just don't think it is. I think it's Obama's staffers who are now running the show. And Joe just knows when to show up for ice cream in the afternoon and to sign anything they put in front of him. But they know what the effect of this is going to be. This is not like they're just stumbling into stupid policies that hurt the country. They're doing this deliberately, aren't they? Or is there any indication that anybody could think this is the right way to handle this? I, I think that they are doing it deliberately, deliberately. I agree that it's not Joe calling the shots and someone else. I think it's a lot of these labor activist groups who are running the show. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, the administration issued another regulation that requires farmers to hand over all the contact information of their employees to these labor groups and the labor groups can just call them and the labor groups can visit the farm and conduct work site inspections. It's, it's, it's madness. That's Sam Peake. He is a senior policy analyst for Americans for Prosperity. Sam, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show.
Elon Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website, The Vote Counts the Same, at LarsLarson.com. If you think that Americans are discouraged by the direction the Biden administration is taking us under Bidenomics, you should really take a look at the numbers when it comes to Hispanic Americans, because their attitude is even more dismal when it comes to Bidenomics. And I thought we'd talk about that with Isabel Soto, who is policy director for the Libre Initiative. Isabel, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Lars. Happy to be back. Hey, just as a, uh, you know, since I you've taken the time today, um, what is the Libre Initiative? Would you mind explaining it to my audience? I've talked to you before, but they, they may not have heard of the Libre Initiative. Yeah, absolutely. So the Libre Initiative is a grassroots-focused Hispanic organization, and we focus on promoting like, freedom-focused policy solutions. So right now we're in 13 states, hoping to expand to 14 by the end of the year. Now, tell me this. What is the point of view, according to the surveys that Libre has done, uh, of Hispanic voters in America when it comes to Joe Biden and the kind of job he's doing? Yeah, well, I, I think you use the word dismal. And unfortunately, that's that's mostly what it is. It's um, not very optimistic, especially with the uh, the whole Bidenomics kick that we keep hearing about, about how great everything uh, everything is. Hispanics disagree. I mean, even just the simple question of, uh, is the country on the right track? 71% of Hispanics, and these are registered uh, voters who are Hispanic, 71% think that the country is headed in the wrong direction. Do you think the Democrat Party is aware of that, or, or are they just ignoring it and, and hoping it'll go away by November of next year? Yeah, and so I think that's, you're hitting on an important kind of issue here. I think that the Democratic Party in large part takes for granted um, the Latino community specifically, right? There's this um, assumption that the minority vote is always going to be Democrat. And we're not seeing that. You can, you know, look that up. Just type it into Google, the Latino vote. People are way more open-minded, and they're shifting because of what matters to Latinos. And the biggest thing that's shown in our polls and in, you know, survey after survey is the economy. And we're just not in a good spot economically. I mean, look, I'm a conservative. I'm a registered Republican, but I'm not that crazy about the Republican Party most days of the week. But I really Mm -hmm. think the Democrat Party has gone crazy. But it's always confused me, Isabel, that I always figured that to the extent that you can generalize about groups of people, you know, saying this group Mm -hmm. is more likely to do this or that group's more likely to do that, whether it's men, women, black, white, um, you know, Native American, uh, Hispanic, that. As a group, it's always seemed to me that Hispanic uh, people in general, again, I'm not talking about specific mm-hmm. individuals, would be pro-family, hardworking, many of them religious, and probably pro-life. Uh, and they want to keep mm-hmm. more of their paycheck, which I think would apply to just about everybody. But, uh, but if you're working that hard, uh, that, that you want to keep your paycheck and you don't want to give as much of, of it to the federal government, you would think that on paper, this group of people as a group would be conservatives by nature, wouldn't they? I agree with that. I mean, and, and that's that's kind of what the polling is seeing. It's, you know, we figure out what matters to Hispanics and then which party is doing a better job. 
So maybe it's, it's not so much about parties. Who has ideas that are going to make people's lives better? And right now, based off of our polling, it looks like it's not Democrats. Um, because right, what, what we're seeing is about 80% of Hispanics are saying that they're not expecting the economy to get better. In fact, they're either expecting it to stay kind of stagnant where it's at or get worse over the next year. I mean, because the 71% wrong track to 29% mm. right track, you would think that somebody over on the left would say, hey, boss, uh, you know, whoever their boss is, maybe it's Joe, maybe it's the head of the DNC, hey, mm. this is going to be a problem. Because most elections, even those where, you know, people, where there's cheating that goes on, are decided by a very small percentage of votes going one direction or another. If we lose this group, what can we do to get them back? And what do you think? Do you think they're going to wake up like that in the next 12, well, 12 or 13 months and suddenly realize we have a problem? And then and then what? How do they get how do they get Hispanic voters back? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, the, the strategy on on the, the left here is, well, we'll just give more money. Let's give out more and more handouts. And hopefully that will work. Let's put stuff out. Maybe we'll put some stuff out in Spanish. Uh, you, you can look at the White House account. They've been putting a lot out for Hispanic Heritage Month. But some of this, like a lot of it, especially kind of these more comms-directed strategies, they lack actual substance. You don't actually see the work going into it. And the handouts, I mean, especially if you are coming from a generation where your uh, grandparents, or in my case, where your parents immigrated, in some cases it's people that are coming from countries or regimes where they know that the government handing you stuff is never free. And so there's this suspicion of kind of government programs and, you know, what might be perceived as government money. So I don't I don't necessarily think the strategy is going to change. And that's to their detriment. You mean kind of like the old Robert Heinlein line? He was one of my favorite fiction authors. He, he called it Tonstoffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch that Hispanic voters mm-hmm. are going to say, you know, there's no free lunch. And by the way. If that Hispanic American, male or female, is working hard and and developing a good paycheck, then they're probably not going to qualify for most of the handouts anyway, are they? No, exactly. If they are doing what they they should be doing and what a lot of people immigrate to this country to be doing, they don't want to be on on you know in in the government's checkbook. They want to be making their own money. Um, I mean, Hispanics are overrepresented in areas like starting small businesses. 25% of all new businesses started in this country are started by Hispanics. Those aren't people that are sitting at home waiting for the government to send them a check. No, but they might. I mean, I, I, all I worry about is that they might fall victim to the everybody gets a check kind of ideas that they shoveled uh-huh. out during the pandemic. You know, every business gets a check. Doesn't matter how well you're doing. Doesn't matter if your owner's a celebrity or, a you know, somebody with a lot, a lot of money in the bank. Everybody gets a free check. And I worry about that kind of tactic as well. Yeah, and I think it is it is easy, I'll say, to, to fall for that kind of thing. Because if someone hands you a check, you know, it's depending on what situation you're in, it's going to be hard to say no, right? Um, and so I think that's where it's important for other organizations, be they like uh, civil society organizations, things like what we do, is to do the education and say, look, you're getting this now, but here's what's happening on the other side. Here's where that money is coming from. It's actually being, at the end of the day, being taken out of your pocket again when you pay taxes. Well, and by the way, Isabel, I, I shared with my audience uh, today, I guess today or yesterday, we finally hit the $33 trillion milestone. 
Not a happy one, yeah. but $33 trillion no. in total debt. And I told folks the interest alone is $69 million bucks, a, a billion bucks a month, over $2 billion a day. And I'm sure that, you know, Hispanic voters understand as, in, as well as anybody, you say, hold on, if you're paying just $69 billion just to pay the interest on the debt and you're not paying the debt down at all and the debt's going up mm-hmm. and it's hit $33 trillion, that is not taking you to any kind of good place. No, I mean, and it's it's completely irresponsible governing. I mean, I know even even if you just look at the deficit, it's double what it was last year. It's about uh, six thousand dollars in like new borrowed money for each American. That's what we're talking about. Six thousand in just one year. I'm talking to Isabel Soto, who's policy director at Libra. Last thing I want to ask you, what are conservatives doing right or wrong to try to capture those Hispanic votes and say, look, we could get back to the Trump economy and get away from Bidenomics? Is that going to work? I think just hitting on the things that Hispanics care about, the economy, making sure regulations get out of the way, and frankly, just being there to listen to the Hispanic community. We did a fly-in this week. We talked to a lot of legislators, and I'm optimistic about the Republican Party really starting to listen. Well, let's hope they keep listening, because sometimes, Isabel, I'd be the first to tell you they don't listen very well and they don't communicate very well. So I'm I'm as critical of the conservatives or Republicans as I think you are. That's Isabel Soto, who's with the Libre Initiative. Check it out online. Back in a moment, I'll be glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. Truth be told, Lars has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls, but I want to talk taxes with the pride of Louisiana uh, former Senator John Bro, who is spokesman for the organization Saving America's Family Enterprises, otherwise known as SAFE. Uh, Senator, welcome back to the program. Hey, Lars, how you doing? Good to be with I'm, you. I'm doing well. You keep the title, don't you, after you're done being senator? I mean, can Bob Menendez uh, in prison call himself Senator Senator Menendez? Oh, I get called all kind of different names. <laughs> <laughs> You, you and me, me both. John. <laughs> yeah, okay, John, uh, l- let me ask you about this. SAFE, uh, which is this great organization, great conservative organization, is working hard because of changes uh, that, that the Bidens would like, uh, the Biden, not just Joe Biden, but uh, I'm sure that all his friends on Capitol Hill would like to make in the Biden tax plan. What What is it uh, that you're fighting against? Because I, I find this subject of unrealized capital gains to be absolutely amazing and it usually takes some explanation well it's um not that complicated in the sense it originated in a court decision out of the western district of washington state where a couple um were being 
taxed on income that they never received. I mean, Charles and Kathleen Moore had invested some money in an overseas company, and the company made a profit every year, but they never distributed any of the profit to the Moors, uh, to the family. They got nothing uh, in their hands from that overseas company, yet uh, the court said that they had to pay taxes on income that they never received. Now, there are some in Congress that want to sponsor that. The administration has proposed a tax on unrealized gains, and some members of Congress are pushing that idea, too. And what they're simply going after is taxing money before you get it. Uh, we think it's unconstitutional, it's unworkable, and our organization has filed a brief with the United States Supreme Court. Hopefully, sometimes in December, they'll get around to hearing this case. And I think, looking at previous cases, they will find that this effort uh, to tax income before you get it is unconstitutional. Because the 16th Amendment says income is when you have income that you've actually got, that you've realized the income that has actually showed up in uh, dollars and cents or, uh, again, Senator Menendez, gold bars in your closet or whatever. But the most common example that I try to use to explain it, Senator, if, you, if you'd uh, agree with me, if my wife and I went down to your neck of the woods and, say, bought a, bought a little place in New Orleans somewhere, and we bought it for $100,000, and after a few years, it's worth $150,000 if I could buy something that cheap, maybe in the Ninth Ward. But, but if I bought something like that and it went up by fifty grand, but I haven't sold it yet, you could say, well, on paper, Lars, you made fifty grand. I say, yeah, but none of it's in my well, pocket. You're exactly right. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, a, a family farm, for instance, uh, uh, may have property and farmland and also a lot of equipment, uh, and it may be worth a, a, a lot of money, but they haven't gotten any money until they sell it. And so this, I think, is a concept that is dangerous. Uh, we're trying to educate the American public, and we're also working to educate uh, members of Congress. And this is something that's unworkable. We don't uh, argue with the fact that people ought to pay their fair share. Uh, if you want to uh, increase revenues, there are a lot of ways to do it that are constitutional, but you can't do it if it's unconstitutional. And that's the argument that we're making before the U.S. Supreme Court and to members of Congress and the administration as well. You know, the most common question I get about this, Senator Bro, uh, as former Senator John Bro now with Saving America's Family Enterprises, is, well, if they're going to charge me when my asset becomes more valuable, like your, your house or your farm or uh, some stock you bought, uh, do I get the money back when the asset goes back down in value? I mean, Elon Musk no, no. Saw, saw a really <laughs> giant no. drop in his value. No, they wouldn't do that. that. That would not constitute a loss until you sell it. But... <laughs> If it increases in value, it would constitute as income, even though you haven't received the income. I mean, I, I think that the court uh, cases in the past have clearly indicated that you cannot uh, require people to pay income tax on income that they've never received. I call it the guest tax. They're going to guess what income you might get if you sell it, and we're going to tax you on what we guess your income might be. I mean, that's unconstitutional. I mean, the courts have said that, but there are people who want to pursue this as a concept, and we want to make sure that the members of Congress understand it, and also the American taxpayer, so they can let their members of Congress know that they should not support any concept of taxing unrealized gains.
Well, Senator Bro, I've thought about this a bit, and I'm curious, because in some ways it sounds like the government wants its money now that you may get later, but that means anything they get now that they are not going to get later. If somebody, if they actually impose this, say, on the value of stocks or bonds or a house or a business or a farm, that means if you're paying on the on the increases every year that you see, even if they're on paper, when you actually get to the day when you sell the farm, the government's going to get a whole lot less. Right now, the government collects taxes on realized capital gains when people sell a house or a business uh, or any other asset for more than what they bought it for, but the government gets it then. The government's going to cut itself off from all those future revenues they might have got because they will have already stripped all the value out of taxing that that asset. Am I wrong? No, I think that's correct. I mean, under this concept, they would look at your property every year and say, well, your property could be sold for um, $10,000 more. We're going to tax you on that as potential income. The next year, they're going to say, no, now this year it would increase by $15,000. They'll tax you on that. So every year you would be forced to estimate uh, what the value of the assets you have and pay tax on uh, that estimated value, even though you haven't received a nickel because you haven't sold anything. I mean, I think it's a bad idea. Well, it is because when you talk about saving America's family enterprises, if you've got a farm and maybe grandma and grandpa bought it and paid for it and the basis is fairly low, I don't know, fifty or $75,000, and today it's worth a million bucks, you've got a really nice piece of uh, ag land down in Louisiana where you're from, um, you'd say, well, you're, you're going to owe taxes on $950,000, pay them up right now. Isn't that going to force an awful lot of small businesses and small farms to, when they're told you had to pay, you know, $400,000 in taxes or $300,000 in taxes, they're going to say, we don't have that money. And the government's going to yeah, say, well, then sell, sell your, your property. property. Exactly. I mean, that's the point. And, and you, you've said it very clearly that if they do uh, uh, a tax uh, uh, statement to you on property that you haven't sold, you're going to probably have to pay the, sell the property in order to pay the tax because you haven't received any income because you haven't sold anything. So, I mean, you know, it, you would force a lot of folks to have to sell their property in order to pay the tax. It would be a for sale, and it's not a good idea. And it's also no. unconstitutional, and it's unworkable. Okay, so we might at best see the decision on this one. If the Supreme Court hears it this fall, we might at best see it by June of next year? Uh, I think that's correct. I think there's a potential that they would be able to uh, uh, first time uh, hear it sometimes in the first two weeks in December, which would mean next year they would have a decision on it. But bear in mind, we have a, a federal decision out of the Ninth Circuit coming out of Washington State that says that they can do exactly that. But uh, that's why this Supreme Court case is so important, and that's why we're involved in it. And we've filed an amicus curiae brief to say exactly what we've been talking about this afternoon. Well, Senator, there is a reason. I'm not a lawyer, but I know there's a reason that the Ninth Circus Court is the most overturned federal appeals court in America. So, cause, cause they're wrong most of the time, it seems to me. That's former Senator John Bro from Louisiana, now with the Saving America's Family Enterprises Group. Senator, it's a pleasure to have you on. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
listen to an interview again, check out LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. You know, I'm a supporter of the police, but I want the police to do their job. Well, now there's talk of forming a federal police force, and I think I find it just as disturbing as Bob Barr does. Bob, of course, is a former CIA analyst, member of the U.S. Congress, and the newly elected first vice president of the board of the National Rifle Association, of which I'm a member, so I have a dog in the fight. And I own guns, so I have two dogs in the fight. Bob, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. Great, uh, great to be with you. And I really appreciate uh, you bringing up this topic of a national police force because it seems to be gaining at least some degree of currency uh, by the far left. You know, back in the day when I was uh, coming up through college and working for the CIA as a young analyst, and even at the time I was the U.S. attorney here in Atlanta, you know, the Democrat Party, uh, generally speaking, stood against abusive federal power and against abusive federal law enforcement. For example, when I was in the House back in the late 90s, I worked closely with the ACLU against government abuses, surveillance, and so forth. But nowadays, the left has seized on this notion of a national police force not to do what we need the police to do, and that is to uh, protect us against the massive rioting and arsonists that we've seen in recent years. They want a national police force to do a better job of reining in the far right. Now, you're, you're saying this is aimed specifically at conservatism and most especially at the folks who identify as MAGA, which I would count myself in that group. I identify as somebody who believes in making America great again, that this is what it's aimed at, not getting a handle on real crime like murder, rape, robbery, assault, looting, arson, and the like that we've seen so much of in the last couple of years. Could this actually happen under our federal system of government? It, well, it can. It shouldn't. And our founders, if one reads the Constitution and reads the Federalist Papers, clearly were, would be aghast and against such a move. But you look at some of the materials now that are out there, and I, I read recently a, uh, an article by a couple of uh, academicians that appeared in uh, Politico magazine about uh, a national police force, and it is very clear the language that they use uh, would be to use a national police force to target, and I'm quoting here, hyperbolic reactions of far-right Republican figures and media commentators white supremacist groups, bellicose conservative agendas, MAGA movements, <laughs> radical Republicans. I mean, this is the language they use, so it is clear that the national police force that the left wants now would be to target conservatives generally and MAGA in particular. Well, and it sounds like from the description you just read, I heard myself in there at least three or four times, but would they even, I mean, let's say, uh, let's, I don't, and I don't even know what they tag it on to, whether it be the FBI or the U.S. Marshals or whatever. But during all the riots following George Floyd's death, um, there were states, especially the blue states, that said, hey, you federal agent, you know, U.S. Marshals, FBI and all that, you can only protect federal property in our state. You have no authority outside of that unless we invite you. 
And that's what the blue state said. I know that because our broadcast studios are two blocks away from what was one of the biggest ground zeros during the riots nationwide. And that was the Marco Hatfield Federal Courthouse. And the local authorities said, you feds have no business protecting anything but that building and other federal buildings. This would also require that the states would have to say yes to it, wouldn't it? I mean, and, and, and this sort of warped uh, notion of the left, yeah. And I remember during that same era, I remember seeing pictures. I wasn't in Washington, D.C. at the time, but I saw news media pictures of federal law enforcement officers, some in uniform, in front of the White House uh, facing demonstrators. And several of these, I think they were FBI agents, were kneeling in solidarity with the protesters. So that gives one a clear indication of where a lot of the sympathies of federal law enforcement officers lie these days. So saying, well, as these authors do, since we have all of these law enforcement agencies out there and they're not properly or fully coordinating with each other, we need to expand that. I mean, just think of the abuses that we already have in federal law enforcement with partisan leadership That would be expanded greatly if we brought all of this together with a national police force law enforcement focus. It would be disastrous, uh, not only dangerous, but it would completely undercut the very notion of what you indicated, and that is our federal system of government not a national system of government. Well, and no no real local input. I mean, they, they might say, well, you have, you can tell us what you like and what you don't like, but ultimately a federal police force would be directed by either the president, head of the executive branch, and, and that whatever he decides is important is what gets enforced. And if he decides it's not important to go after certain things, so it could be directed very politically from the White House alone. I mean, not even like, once you set it up, if the Congress authorized it, once it's once the federal police force is out there, the person who's in charge of it is whoever happens to be sitting in the Oval Office, right? Absolutely correct. And even the heads of the different agencies that might report to a national police director, they're not elected by the people. Uh, some of them may be appointed by the Senate. But the public has no real input on those kind of things. And others, for example, ahead of the FBI, there's no public input whatsoever on, uh, on that individual. So it completely cuts out the, the, the citizenry from the decision-making, and it completely undercuts the power of the states, which is where political power, in the view of our framers, was intended to and should reside. You know what it reminds me of, Bob, is is Germany, because Germany has a federal police force. I mean, they have a little teeny bit of local police, but for the most part, they're now they're a much smaller place than the United States, but they're they're one big federal police force directed from Berlin, right? Right, and uh, most countries are like that. In England, for example, and the authors the authors of this piece in Politico that I referred to. They lament the fact that, well, the uh, U.K. has this centralized police force and we don't. Hey, guys, we (laughs) broke away from England specifically because of that type of national force. Absolutely right. Bob, it sounds like the OMB may be saying, hey, maybe we just kick the can down the road on the debt ceiling. But I wish we had time to talk about that with you. But we so appreciate your point of view. Thanks a lot, Bob. Always a pleasure.
That is Bob Barr, former member of Congress and newly elected first vice president to the board of directors of the NRA. And yes, I got a bias there. We'll get to your phone calls and emails in the next segment. 866-HEY-LARS. And send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. the health we're all on our it's friday 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 welcome to first amendment friday on the lars larson show thank god it's friday today lars puts you in the driver's seat you talk about what you want to talk about government is the problem no topic is off limits we will make america great again call 866-HEY-LARS that's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind now first amendment friday with lars larson you're listening to the best of the lars larson show Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I've told you a few times I had two parents in the military. Mom was uh, Lieutenant J.G. Harriet Larson. And my dad uh, was in the United States Navy, came out as a chief petty officer. He was in for about 21. She was in for five. So I admire that. And anybody who's had a parent in the military knows that you're fascinated by the stories when those vets are willing to tell their stories. So I wanted to talk to Charles Stanley, author of a brand new book called Lost Airmen, the epic rescue of World War II U.S. bomber crews stranded behind enemy lines. Mr. Stanley, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. What happened to your father and 18 of his fellow service members? <laughs> well, he was uh, he was shot down, um, or I should say shot up over Germany and bailed out over uh, Yugoslavia. Wow. They managed to get to Yugoslavia. Was that friendly territory at that point or not? It was, uh, it was not the occupied by, in the cities, but they couldn't control the countryside. So the underground managed to get a hold of them and bring them to a uh, secure area called uh, Sansky Most. Now, did they bail out of that bomber or did they, did they ride the bomber down? How did it work? Because they, no. had, they had parachutes, right? Yeah, they they bailed out. Uh, it's about the book's about thirteen crews. My father's crew is uh, one of them, and yeah, most of them uh, bailed out. Only one of only one of those crews uh, crash landed. And how did they manage? How long were they stuck behind enemy lines then? Well, it, it varied according to you know their uh, departure date. But they uh, they were the the ones who were there the longest were uh, there for a good uh, two months. Two months, and they managed to stay hidden, managed to stay fed, and managed to stay safe during all that time. Yeah, it, uh, it wasn't easy because, uh, you know, this is a war-torn country, and, uh, you know, the underground protected them. But uh, the people themselves didn't have a lot of resources. They, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is a country that was uh, as devastated by war as any in uh, World War II. So tell me this. Did your dad talk about these stories? Did he tell you these stories? Well, he uh, he wasn't much of a talker. But uh, finally, when we were uh, when he was getting older, um, we uh, we started looking into his story. And it was only then that we realized what a what a terrific story it was. And uh, and I, I didn't intend to write a book about it. It was only when I 
sort of dug into it a little bit, I realized that nobody had written about um, the experience of airmen being shot down in Yugoslavia before. And I decided that somebody ought to, so I did. Well, you're a lucky guy because, Charles, um, my dad's gone, uh, but and my mom's gone as well. My mom was gone 50 years ago, my dad more recently, uh, but, but not very recently. Uh, but the only time he never, my dad never really told stories either. Uh, and I, and I, mm -hmm. and I kind of regret even in those days where I would have been, say, recording it on tape, <laughs> which almost sounds antiquated right. by today. But the only, I did have one experience because he had come to live with my wife and I for a time and the internet was relatively new. It was at least new to him. I used it every day, but it was in the, in the late nineties. Yeah. So the internet, I mean, the modern internet kind of began in 95 with Netscape. And he said, what is this Internet thing? And I said, well, uh, I'll show you. So we sat down in front of a desktop computer, big clunky thing in, in the late 90s. And I said, what was the name of the sub you were on? Because he, he was on a flat top for a while. He was a corpsman, right? He was a medical corpsman, chief yep. petty officer. And uh, he was a pharmacist mate. He's basically, I think, he was a hard-hat diver for a while. He did a bunch of stuff. And, wow. and, and he gave me the name of the sub. And I said, well, let's see what happens. I had no idea. And, and again, the Internet wasn't as comprehensive as it is now. I plugged in the name of the sub. I put U.S. Navy submarine and the name. There were like 12 sites that were all maintained by different people uh, who were associated with. And there were pictures. And, and one, of them, one of the stories they had on there, because he had told me the story. He said, yeah, one time, uh, not the plane that George Herbert Walker Bush was flying, but the PBY. Uh, they, they had PBYs yeah. out there, and occasionally they'd go in the drink, and they had to worry about sharks and killer whales and all kinds of things. So he said, we fished this guy out of the drink and, you know, got him all fixed up and then delivered him back, you know, back, uh, you know, got him back to land. Um, but, but he told me that the story was there on the site. And, and I, and, but that was one of the few that I remember from him uh, because he, like your dad, just wasn't a big talker. No, and actually I, I interviewed 40 of these guys, and that was the case with most of them. They... Typically, they they didn't talk for till they got to about sixty five when the the uh, you know they decided that they'd better tell their story now, um, and uh, and I think after some of the trauma had had worn off. Tell me this: what was the most uh, striking story of those you collected for the book called "Lost Airmen: The Epic Rescue of World War II U.S. Bomber Crews Stranded Behind Enemy Lines"? Well, the uh, I'll say the probably the most dramatic was. Uh, was John Wolf's story. John uh, Wolf was a pilot who, uh, like my father, was shot up uh, over Germany, uh, got to Yugoslavia. Um, and uh, uh, typically what, what each pilot did was order their crew to lighten the ship so they could get further, uh, closer to the uh, Adriatic coast so that they could be rescued. And so they, 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 he ordered his men to uh, throw out all the guns and ammunition uh, in the back of the plane and uh, it got so low that he suddenly realized uh, we're getting too low to bail out. And uh, he, he rang the bailout buzzer. Uh, most of the crew left, but three of them were left behind. And uh, he, uh, by the time he realized that they were too low to bail out, and he crash-landed that plane into the side of a mountain and, uh, in, a, in an effort to save them, and only one of them survived. The wolf himself uh, sacrificed himself for those men. Wow. I mean, because that's, that's quite a decision to have to make, that if you get so consumed with trying to deal with keeping the plane in the air and then you realize 
Yeah, because it, even even in modern times, I think you need usually at least a, what fifteen hundred feet, maybe two thousand feet to have a parachute oh, you, you, operate. You'd like, you, you, you would like to have uh, a good thousand feet at, at least. Uh, actually, my father bailed out twice. The first time he bailed out from three hundred feet. Oh no! And and without a, without a scratch. Really. Because because really? people people I've I've done a couple of tandem jumps but I, you know and I thought it was a lot of fun but but you have to have time for that chute to inflate fully you know from the air yes, and you if you do. don't you're still going too fast when you get to the ground. He he pulled the cord while he was in the bomb bay jumping, knowing how how close it was to uh, the ground. Yes, that's one of the that's that's not a bad story either uh, in the early part of the book. No, absolutely right. Mr. Stanley, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we so appreciate the sacrifice of people like your father and those World War II bomber crews. The book is called Lost Airmen, the Epic Rescue of World War II U.S. Bomber Crews Stranded Behind Enemy Lines. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll be glad to get your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the daily question at Lars Larson Show. And tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. something on the Lars Larson show check out posted interviews and podcasts at LarsLarson.com. you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show welcome back to the Lars Larson show it's a pleasure to be with you if you want to join what we call the best conversation and talk journalism it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS that's 866-439-5277 send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll you'll find a brand new question each and every day we write it from the news of the day sometimes I do it sometimes my producers do it we make it kind of a group effort to put together a great question for it you can find it at Lars Larson show on Twitter or X if you prefer or you can find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Imagine this. The White House has now said, if you're a senior administration official working for Joe Biden, you know, the Joe Biden who wants to eliminate the fossil fuel business in the next decade or so, you are now prohibited from traveling to any international conference that involves oil, natural gas, coal, or any other kind of fossil fuel. Now, if they said, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it if they said, hey, the White House is prohibiting all travel by federal officials, including Joe Biden, that involves the use of fossil fuels, you know, like the Marine One helicopter or Air Force One, the airplane or the beast, that big uh, tank of a car that I think gets one mile to the gallon. Um, if they did that, I'd, I, I'd actually think they'd be sending a signal. Instead, they seem only to try to make things worse for America's oil industry as a way of signaling America is not going to use its own energy. We're going to tie ourselves to the apron strings of Joe Biden's Chinese communist friends in Beijing. 
On that note, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Daniel Turner, president of Power of the Future. Daniel, welcome back. And I don't expect you to agree with anything I just said, but this is crazy, isn't it? I agree with everything you said, Lars, and it's great to be on your program. And this actually, I find there's a lot this president has done that is angering and infuriating. This one I find to be particularly personally very offensive because I'm a regular speaker at these conferences. Uh, You know, this is an industry that, heck, just at the State of the Union not many months ago, he even admitted, my experts say we need fossil fuels for at least 10 more years. And Republicans all laughed because we know we need fossil fuels for the foreseeable future way more than 10 years. But it's an industry that employs millions of people, uh, millions of Americans, and, and does power our economy. It powers our national security. It powers Joe Biden's weekly visits to his Delaware beach house. He has no problem using fossil fuels. But when you say you're prohibited from attending their conferences, you make it clear this is an enemy, right? We're not prohibited from going to Iran to negotiate a nuclear deal. We're not prohibited from going to Venezuela to beg for oil, but you're prohibited from attending an oil and gas conference. So so when I say there's a war on American fossil fuels, it's because Joe Biden has declared us his enemy. And by the way, let me add one more to your list of things that they don't mind doing. After Joe Biden defamed the Saudis and said they're pariahs and I'm going to make them pariahs, but the minute he ran into a problem because American gas and oil prices were going up, and that was trouble at the polls last year, Joe Biden was happy to go hat in hand to the Saudi Arabians. It didn't do him any good, but he went to them and said, hey, could you pump some more oil and could you ease our shortfall that we've created for ourselves? And the Saudis, I think, pretty much told him to pound sand. They might have given him a token half a million barrels or something. But that he's out there begging for foreign leaders, including some thugs and despots. Would you please produce more oil? While back at home, he's condemning the industry altogether. Exactly. Then why wouldn't you want your your staff, your senior level administration officials, why wouldn't you want them attending these foreign conferences? If if you need this for the survival of America, because quite, quite frankly, we are more dependent on foreign nations for our oil because we're not producing enough domestically. So again, it doesn't even make any sense from just the diplomatic standpoint. You know, this is a man who, who brags about how he's a foreign policy expert, and we've seen the great foreign policy debacles, starting with Afghanistan and continuing all around the world. And yet here is just a it's an innocuous oil and gas conference, right? It's not a pornography conference. Lars. <laughs> it is not a nuclear arms conference. It's an oil and gas conference. And you're begging these world leaders to produce. But you won't even allow your administration officials to do the soft diplomacy of, of attending them. And, and, and quite frankly, not all the oil and gas countries are bad. Right. I mean, the, the, the Scandinavian no. countries, the entire uh, Pacific, uh, um, um, Northwest Atlantic, uh, Northeast Atlantic is all is, is oil and gas. Right. Southeast Asian countries who we're friendly with produce oil and gas. South American countries who we're friendly with produce oil and gas. So why are we demonizing this industry? Why? Why continue to create these unnecessary tensions and hostilities? Well, and, and the industry itself could ask some, uh, and this may be uh, Joe Biden's biggest concern, by allowing the Deputy Secretary of Energy, David Turk, to write this memo saying, we're going to put travel restrictions on. You have to obtain approval from the National Security Council, for God's sake, before you go to any of these global energy engagements. But they could actually go to them and say, hey, 
Are there ways that we could show you how to, uh, you know, clean uh, clean up your production of, say, natural gas? I saw a figure the other night, uh, and I, I don't know if you'd agree with the number, but I was fascinated by it. It was a gentleman who was being interviewed, and he said, we produce natural gas about 40% cleaner than Russia produces natural gas. So if American natural gas was produced and loaded on LNG tankers and sold to Western Europe, you could arguably cut the amount of pollution going into the air by 40% producing the same fuel. But how do we get that word out to those various you know, countries and companies if you don't allow anybody from the administration to actually go to these things where they get together and talk about the latest developments? It's such a great point. And this is where if Joe Biden had any of that true pride in our country that he talks about, he would realize when it comes to this industry, we do it better than everyone else. We are the world's leader of how to produce more oil and gas and lower emissions. We've lowered our emissions 18% since the year 2000. I mean, that's an enormous percentage, and it comes from not the heavy hand of government, but from trust in an industry that is always trying to be more efficient, always trying to be cleaner, always trying to be better. And we could export that technology all around the world, but again, Biden is hamstringing this industry and punishing us for doing what we do very, very well. And I'd love to come back on your show in a couple of weeks, Lars, because several hundred Biden administrations will all fly to COP28, the <laughs> annual climate conference that they always have in November. So they will use our fossil fuels to go to a climate conference, but you can't use fossil fuels to go to a fossil fuel conference. And I find that level of hypocrisy angering. I'm almost at the stage that they should just forego fossil fuels forever and stay in Washington, D.C. and be stranded, but they won't do that. I guess what I, I wonder about is this. Number one, do you think the White House is most concerned that when these folks show up at the conferences, they're going to get read the riot act by the people who are taking part, saying you folks are being foolish and stupid, you're hurting your own people. And they're worried that sending a, a Biden administration official to these conferences, when they get read the riot act and that becomes public, that that's going to look bad for the White House. And they care more about optics than they do about the environment. They do. That's a great point. And the, and the optics matter very much. But also at the same time, this is an administration that's telling us that it's absolutely essential to, to, to end um, the war in Ukraine and to, and to crush Vladimir Putin. And the best way to, to crush him is what you just said about natural gas and also with oil. The best way to end these other conflicts that we're seeing around the world to weaken Iran, to weaken Venezuela, is to produce more oil and gas and not just America but Canada and Mexico and other peaceful nations, we can put the bad guys on warning if we produce more. So again, you're just stuck in this catch-22 situation that the very thing that will help our economy and help world peace is who Joe Biden has declared his enemy. And, and you can see how it's bringing him down. Look at his poll numbers on the economy. Look at his poll numbers for re-election. So the White House continues to just shoot itself in the foot. But by the way, $100 a barrel oil, Joe did that. I'll bet yep. Vladimir Putin is laughing all the way to the bank. 100 buck a barrel uh, oil, that's fantastic for Russia, not so good for everybody else. Daniel, thank you very much. That's Daniel Turner, the president of Power of the Future. I'm glad to get your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The 
The Lars Larson Show. Calling all men and the people who love them. provocative talk radio here's lars larson you're listening to the best of the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and i'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails i'll do more of that in just a moment but first i want to talk a bit about what has happened since roe v wade was overturned in june of last year i know the uh the decision, or what was alleged to be the decision, got out earlier than that, but the Supreme Court's official announcement came just about a year ago in June. And the question is, what effect has that had on the rest of the country? Sean Carney is CEO and president of 40 Days for Life. Sean, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. And it was good to see Roe v. Wade overturned because... I know that the the Democrats and liberals who have to be pro-abortion, they don't even call it pro-abortion, but they, they call themselves, you know, pro-choice and all these little uh, g- grammatical workarounds uh, to avoid actually saying the A word. Uh, but they always said, well, uh, it's a right from the Constitution, which nobody else could find in the Constitution except the Supreme Court 50 years ago. This has been a great development for America, and it puts the decision-making back in the hands of states. So what's happened since that decision? Well, since that decision, we've seen abortion advocates have to do something that they haven't had to do in 50 years because they've had the comfort of, of Roe, and that's discuss abortion, and, and they're not very good at it. Um, that's why you see these absurd things where they're promoting infanticide. You see abortion becoming uh, really a sacrament for our federal government, whether it be the FDA that's deregulating chemical abortions or the DOJ that's targeting pro-life groups or the military that's now saying we're just going to fly everybody around so that they can get abortions. Um, the react- and, pay for, and pay for them, by the way, in violation of the Hyde them, Amendment. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was very reactionary on their end. On our end, it's been great. I mean, we have grown significantly. Uh, in the grassroots. People should know the grassroots pro-life movement in America is the example for the world. It's very robust. Pregnancy resource centers outnumber abortion providers five to one across the country, um, including states like California, New Jersey, and Illinois. We have things like 40 Days for Life where we regularly go out and offer alternatives to abortion uh, where the abortions actually take place. The abortion industry has nothing like that at the local level. They're very top-heavy. So the base of the pro-life movement was much more motivated with the overturning of Roe. It, it wasn't, well, the work's done, let's let's go home. <laughs> um, it was quite the opposite. So we've, we've had an increase in locations and volunteers in the U.S., and that's despite losing some locations for the best reason, which is an abortion facility closed post-Roe. So uh, I would say enthusiasm and growth would characterize what's happened in, in the pro-life movement. Well, and you know what I would hope, Sean, is that we take that the Republican office seekers and office holders are forced to actually advocate for this, because 
it seems like an absolutely amazing moment in history where you've got the vice president of the United States. I realize she's not the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, she, she has a tough time speaking most of the time, just like her boss. But when she was asked, I think it's now about a week and a half ago, would you tell us how far you're willing to go with this? Would you take abortion right up to the moment of birth? which is, of course, what the piece of legislation that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been pushing says. It says take it up to the moment of birth. And even they get queasy, not just queasy, Kamala Harris just flatly refused to answer the question. And you think this is your issue. You want to have abortions up to this moment. Are you not willing to actually say it out loud? It's like somebody who you know, I I, I think I, I wish I could come up with a better metaphor. But, Sean, somebody who says, I really, really want a, well, I'd like an adult beverage that's cold. It's a hot day. And you say, why don't you just say beer? You say, well, you know, (laughs) and if they can't bring themselves to say it, then that shows that they're uncomfortable with the idea, too, doesn't it? I like that analogy. Another one is if if abortion is legitimate health care, which it's not, that's why they always have to tell us that it is. um, Well, if you're if you asked her. Look, if your uncle gets in there and, and and he's examined for his triple bypass surgery and the and the cardiologist looks at you and says, "Hey, he needs quadruple bypass. Are you okay with doing quadruple bypass?" She'd be like, "Yeah, the doctor said he needed it. Do it." What this isn't controversial. Healthcare's not controversial when it's necessary, and abortion's not necessary. And so there's two sides of it. There's do you believe in abortion up to 40 weeks? She says yes. Or do you believe in abortion up to 40 weeks? She says nothing or she says no. Why not? Why would you deny a woman access to health care and not allow abortion at 40 weeks? What's wrong with an abortion? Uh, and, and, and make them talk about it. And that's what's so good for us in a post-Roe world because we're realizing that we can no longer live in the fantasy of 1973 science. And that is exactly what, the, what Alito put in the opinion. They are trying to drag us out of 1973 science. We do surgeries on unborn children. We don't allow pregnant women to get on a roller coaster. It, it's just unbelievable the precedent we have of protecting the unborn. And we can't live in a country where you're simply not a human being in California and you are in Texas. That's not sustainable. It didn't work with slavery. It won't work with with. Uh, abortion because we're forced to be schizophrenic and that's why you see the confusion on her face well the other two things that i wish conservatives would keep reminding because it seems seems uh you know like like a great time to do that is the history of margaret sanger and eugenics and you say where were who championed putting all those abortion clinics in all those minority neighborhoods well that would be a lady who wanted to wipe out the black population in america you say well who is that Uh, Nobody knows her name. Margaret Sanger. I mean, Hillary Clinton got the Margaret Sanger Award. Remind them of that history and say, are you still interested in wiping out groups of people because of their skin color? Because that's what Margaret Sanger wanted to do. And today, many of the abortion clinics and uh, I think a proportionate majority of the abortions are done on black women. So is your is your cause to get rid of black um, black American babies before they're born? I mean, that's that's I mean, abortion's ugly enough on its own. But when you start doing it and saying we're going to wipe out all the Down syndrome kids, we're going to wipe out any kid that isn't picture perfect. 
you know, and 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 we want you to use this tool to do it. Uh, I, I can't imagine the average American saying, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And this is what's horrible to see these terrible Republicans botching this, um, because it, it's it's just there for the taking. And, you know, if you are pro-eugenics, which many people are, they just won't say it out loud. But if you're <laughs> pro-eugenics, abortion is the greatest thing in the world. Um, and, and I don't understand why you can't ask people, you know, look. Black Americans make up 13% of the population and 43% of all abortions. Yep. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you the know? other and, thing, Sean, and, that's a little softer is this. Everybody wants to say, well, it's for incest, rape, and to save the life of the mother. And the best numbers out of Florida say that's 2 or 3%. What about the other 97? What's the great excuse there? And I always tell people it's convenience. That's the justification. And you say, what do you mean convenience? I said, well, some young lady says, yeah, I'm pregnant by my last boyfriend, but now I'm with a new guy and the baby ain't going over too good with a new boyfriend. Or uh, I got pregnant, uh, you know, uh, by somebody other than the man I'm married to. And that's not convenient. Or I'm about to start school or a new job and a baby at this point would be inconvenient. I said, how far are we going to go to let people, you know, terminate a human life because of their own personal convenience and they say no it's more than that it's rape incest and save the life of the mother you say that's two to three percent what about the other 97 sean carney is the ceo and president of 40 days for life we'll be back in a moment i'll get to your calls at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 you're listening to the lars larson show you're listening to the best of the lars larson show Interviews with authors, experts, and a healthy dose of opinion. Find it at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to tell some tell you something. Uh, if you were to listen to this show, you might gather the impression that I hate the idea of electric cars. I do not. I think all kinds of technology is important, and brand new technology usually has some bugs to be worked out. But I'll be happy with electric vehicles when they do two things. One, when they make economic sense, and they don't right now, by my view. Uh, and number two, when I'm convinced that America can actually generate the electric power uh, that is necessary to keep them recharged. Uh, those two things would go a long way. So when I got the opportunity to put James Bell on, who's director of corporate communications for Kia America, I said yes in a hurry. James, welcome to the program. How are you? Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. So let me ask you this. Uh, you Let's start with this. Uh, you say that electric vehicles are becoming more popular. Are they and would they be popular at all but for the government subsidies and the push from the government that everybody has to buy them in the next 10 or 15 years? Well, well I, I disagree with the statement of that everybody has to buy them. We're just in the middle of a, uh, a really fascinating and, and um, fantastic transition time. Not unlike, I would say, what must have been experienced between the horse-drawn carriage and early gasoline. 
And so um, I do believe that they're popular and, and gaining in popularity based on people's experience with them. They, there is a, a luxury to not going to the gas station, especially if you come home late one night and say, oh, I've got an early morning tomorrow. Uh, let, me, let me get gas in the morning. And then, as we all do, we run late the next day and uh, jump in the car and say, oh, heck, now I have to go to the gas station. That, that situation is washed away. So there's a luxury to it, and, and as more and more people experience electric personal transportation, they're, they're telling their experiences, and so it's, it's kind of a, a groundswell as well. Well, James, you say we're going to have uh, filling stations and oil and gas-powered cars for decades. I agree with you, but you may be mm-hmm. familiar with a guy, Joe Biden. Joe Biden says we're only going to need oil for the next 10 years. He said that less, less than a month ago. And so apparently from his point of view, and right now he's president of the United States, and from the point of view of the states where they've said we're going to mandate the end of gasoline-powered vehicles in many states by 2035, they seem to think they're going to get rid of the gas-powered, diesel-powered cars fairly quickly, and that will effectively force people to buy them. Well, that's not entirely true. What, what has been said in countries all across the world, including uh, several states here in the U.S., is that uh, gasoline-powered vehicles will no longer be allowed to be sold. They're not going to be taken away. They're not going to, you know, disappear. It's just that we're starting this transitional period. Again, I, I can't help but equate it to the transition from horse-drawn carriage to gasoline. We still have horses. They're just used for different reasons. And I think that's what's going to happen in this case. People will use um, electric vehicles for running around town, picking kids up at school, commute to jobs, you know, the, the, the little daily things uh, where when using gasoline power car is not as efficient, but then, t- uh, you know, a long trip to grandma's house, uh, throwing uh, things in the back and going on camping trips, things of that nature will still be uh, probably used um, or will still probably use gasoline power for that. So I do see it a little bit differently. Well, I see it as more of a transitional than a than a deadline. Okay, but let me ask you about this, James. Do they make economic yeah. sense today? When the average electric vehicle, last year it was $20,000 difference to a, a comparable gasoline or diesel car. This year they've cut the difference to 10000 But 10000 bucks yeah. for the average. And in the case of the higher-end vehicles, the ones that will go farther and all that, the difference is even bigger than that. The difference between a base model F-150 gas pickup truck from Ford and an electric, the Lightning, is 20000 bucks. That's enough to buy the gas mm-hmm. to drive you around planet Earth four times if we had a highway to do it. Do they make economic sense? I believe we're getting into that phase, yes. I mean, I, I can't speak for my friends at Ford, but I can tell you here at Kia, our uh, least expensive EV is in the low 40s, um, not, you know, maybe... Uh, within seven or eight thousand dollars of an equivalent gasoline-powered car, but then from that you're getting you know darn close to thirty uh, sorry three hundred miles of range on a charge. And again, it's it's the luxury of no longer being tethered to the gasoline station process wow. to being able to charge at home. The other part about it that I think people really are are starting to catch on to, <clears throat> excuse me, is is the luxury of of, of the driving experience itself. Um, it's quiet. It's smooth. It's powerful. It's just a. It's just a, a, a nice place to be, and and it relieves a lot of, the, of daily pressure. And I think we're all probably looking for that at some level. Well, let me ask you about some of the other uh, you know, advantages of an electric car. How do the insurance yeah. premiums compare? Because I've been told that electric vehicle premiums for insurance, which everybody has to have, 
are 27% higher than for gas-powered vehicles. That's an industry number. That doesn't sound like a, like a, a fun experience. Uh, well, I, I can't speak to that. Again, I'm on the manufacturing side of this, but um, it, it kind of confuses me. It, it may have been that way at the start as the technology was maybe a little bit harder, uh, you know, from a supply chain, uh, just not as common as, say, a, a carburetor or, you know, the things that go into gasoline-powered cars. But I think that um, that, that is going to change. As far as the you know, the maintenance and the uh, reliability and the usability of gasoline-powered, or sorry, of, of uh, electric vehicles, uh, insurance companies would be very pleased with that because putting them back together in an accident is much less complexity. Um, you know, average oh, uh, gasoline-powered car has about 20,000 parts and an electric car has about 4,000. So there's much less there that needs to be replaced. Except I've been told that in some accidents, they say, well, we, you've got damage to the battery. You can't fix part of the battery. You may have to junk the whole car after an, after an accident. Is that not true? Again, well, I can't speak for an accident and the dynamics of that. But, you know, all the manufacturers are building the battery system as an integral portion and part of the actual structure of the vehicle. These things happen. But, again, okay. I, I, I think the real point of the story here is is to identify that this is a a transitional time. We're moving towards this. The, the proverbial switch has been flipped, and those that are embracing and trying electric vehicles, again, for their daily commutes, for, um, you know, just daily life as opposed to long, long journeys at this time, until such time that we have more charging infrastructure and, and being able to charge at home, uh, you know, the, the, the man in the street who's living with those vehicles is having a very good experience. Last quick question, James, because we're up to a break. Who should pay for that charging infrastructure? Because the government didn't subsidize gas stations, but now they're telling all of us that we all have to pay for the electric charging stations. Should the taxpayers pay for it or the people who choose electric cars? Well, I'm not sure where you're getting that information because as at this point, it's, it's really kind of a combination of the manufacturers themselves partnering with uh, um, uh, independent agencies and businesses to open up. Uh, new charging stations, the petroleum companies, they've seen this uh, for you years. You didn't notice have a Joe, very good... Joe Biden's green bill that said we're going to shovel out billions of dollars for charging stations. James Bell is the head of corporate communications for Kia. Mr. Bell, it's a pleasure to have you on. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by 